0: All right, Matthew chapter 18, Matthew 18, and I've just now realized I've set my phone up opposite of the way I normally do it. So if you guys see me looking this direction, please forgive me, I've always set my camera up so that it's on that side now, today it's on this side. I said a little bit bit frazzled this evening, but ready to teach you guys, Matthew 18, that being said, let's pray ask for God's help. As we get into this, Father, please guide us now. We're opening up Your book. This isn't, uh, this isn't just my book. I didn't write it. Lord, it's, it's, it's not the book of any man. Man couldn't put this book together, not, not this smartly. I know You used men, and You continue to use men, but Father, we know that the Holy Spirit is behind these words, and therefore we, we look to, to You for guidance Please speak to our hearts tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. You might have received the outline for this evening. Three parts. Part number one, little is much, verses 1 to 14. Little is much. And then verses 15 to 20, the local church manual. Local church manual. And then verses 21 to 35, the end of the chapter, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, and that has a double meaning to it, you'll see as as we get into it. All right, verse verse number one, at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It appears, as I understand it, that the disciples had this conversation more than once, which Is kind of surprising. And I think we would maybe chalk up this, what seems to be a bit of an immature conversation, which one of them is going to be the greatest. If you think about it, where they're at in their discipleship, I know that they've been walking with the Lord for close to three years by this point, but they're still rather new to the, what we would call, Christian life. As time goes on and you get in later into the book of Acts, you have Peter and John and James and these men writing their epistles, they, of course, uh, I I don't think later on in their life would have this conversation. But they want to know, what does it take to be greatest in in the kingdom? Understanding that's the millennial kingdom, Jesus ruling on earth. Verse 2, here's the answer they were not expecting. Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily, I say unto you, Except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's a very interesting statement. I wonder. I really would like to ask the disciples. Well, and ask the Lord as well. But I'd like to know how the disciples heard this. When when they heard, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Did this then? Did it cross their mind? Wow, we better. We better have the right attitude towards these things or else we may not even enter? Or was this more of a general statement when Jesus said, Ye? He's not maybe directly addressing the disciples in front of Him, but talking about people in general. I, I would like to know what was behind that. As it turns out, obviously, we get into the body of Christ and and the idea of, of being a disciple and then losing it. I don't think that's any, any longer a possibility, but I believe at the time when Jesus said it, it was still a possibility that if they didn't get their attitude right, if they get lifted up with pride, that they could have potentially missed out on the kingdom. Let's let's learn, I believe, though, the the principal lessons uh, that Jesus is trying to communicate to them. He takes this little child into the midst. They want to know who's going to be the greatest. To think that it would be a little child is the last thing they would have guessed. He sits the little child in the midst of them. He says, Except ye be converted. Now that word converted, strepho in the Greek, it means to make a turnaround. To make a turnaround. We would say to do a complete 180. Unless you change your thinking, your approach to this, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So forget about who's going to be the greatest. You guys need to worry about about who's going to enter. Now, many people, they approach this passage and they use it to, to, to teach that we need to have childlike faith in order to enter the kingdom or be saved. I do not think that's what Jesus is teaching. I do not think that the Bible teaches a childlike faith anywhere. Now, But let me, let me unpack that, that, that statement a little bit. I do see how what Jesus is teaching in this passage would affect somebody's faith, right? So I can see how indirectly we would learn something about faith here. But I don't think Jesus is talking about faith. And I don't think that the Bible talks anywhere directly about having the faith like a little child. There's no verses that suggest that. The Bible says when it comes to understanding, be men, right? Approach things in a a rational way logical way we're not expected to believe things just because someone else told us right that's little children are very simple and the bible rebukes that in the book of proverbs and says the simple believeth every word so this idea of whatever the preacher says we should just believe it we don't have to understand it it doesn't need to make sense we'll just go with it that's blind faith and that's not commendable but if you do have a validated, verified, reliable source, such as the Bible, if you have a preacher saying, thus saith the Lord, and he's giving you something out of the Bible, you can trust that, see? Then, you, then there's a reason, there's a, a, a rational reason to have faith in what is being said. However, I believe the primary lesson, you can find it in verse four, Uh, verse 4 a little bit, in verse 5. In verse 4, whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child. I believe Jesus pulled the little child in not to teach a childlike faith, but a childlike humility. Now here's where I think we can indirectly get to faith. A child is generally easier to teach than an older person. Older people, we have more to unlearn. It's a little difficult for us to, to get past some Preconceived notions that we have, and this little child, very humble, right? Is not that kid is not thinking about who's going to be the greatest. You have to humble yourself as a little child, little kid. Generally speaking, I in today's age, the way that a lot of kids are raised, they think, they think that the whole world revolves around around them. By the age of five or six, they they expect everybody to fall at their feet, do what they want, and. Oh, it's kind of, it's, it's discouraging to see children under that, in, with that uh, frame of mind at such a young age. But I believe the way the Lord intends it to be is a little child realizes all these adults, all these other people, in the world, I am obviously not the greatest it, it, around here. I'm not able to run my own life. I'm not able to take care of myself. I, I need to depend on others. There is this built-in humility to being young. They, they know that they need mom and dad to answer questions and provide for them and so forth. It's all built into the humility of the child. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus has acknowledged previously, we, we've read it in the Gospel of Matthew, that there are levels within the kingdom, right? That some will be considered the greatest, some will be considered least. And he's told us what what those uh, standards would be. In Matthew chapter 5, he talks about somebody keeping the least things of the law. That person's going to be greatest. If if somebody breaks the least things, then they would be least in the kingdom. Uh, Just turn over to Matthew 20 quickly. Matthew 20. In verse number 26, Jesus says, But it shall not, so, uh, shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. So it's not only humility that qualifies a person for greatness in the kingdom of heaven, but service, uh, paying attention to even the smallest details of the law and doing what God expects, that, that plays into it. I find it interesting when we look at Matthew 18, though, the one who is not concerned about being great in the kingdom is the one who becomes great in the kingdom. The one who is, who is content with their place in life to say, I don't, I don't have to have a great reputation. Not everybody has to see me, recognize me, see what I'm doing. I know my place in this world. I know what God expects of me. I'm happy to just do that. I'll be a servant, try to pay attention to this. I'll just go about it. And he's not worried. And, and I've, I've had this question before. People have asked, is it right for us to, uh, to receive rewards at the judgment seat of Christ? It seems as if we should just serve Christ because we love Him, not for the rewards. And to that I say, amen. That's true. I'm not serving the Lord so that I get a crown. Now, is it right for him to reward good deeds? Is it right for the Lord to recognize the labor of people serving him? Yes, that's part of being a righteous judge. Um, he's, He's not doing anything wrong by honoring that. However, he's not honoring people that serve him just so they can get the honor. I hope you're following my intention there. What Jesus is going to reward are people who served him because of the right reasons, out of love for God and for their fellow man. So it's the person who's not concerned about being great who actually ends up being great. Verse 5 And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. Now, that phrase, in my name, we know that it appears many times in scripture. There's two ways that we can understand in my name. It can denote uh, the authority that Jesus has, has bestowed upon someone. I have told you to do it. right? So I do it in his name. Jesus gave me authority to do it this way. But also, we can understand it for his sake. I'm doing it in the name of Christ. Be- that is... He, he did tell me to do it, and I'm going to do it the way he said, but I'm, I'm doing this in a manner that pleases him. I'm doing this to make him happy. So, And I think those two things work together. I don't think they're exclusive ideas. Those two ideas work together. But we receive one such little child for Jesus' sake, and we're able to minister to that child. Jesus has told us what to do and how, how to take care of that child. And in so doing, Jesus says, you're receiving me. This, we're going to talk more about it in Matthew 25. You've done it unto one of the least of my brethren. You've done it unto me. Jesus shows over and over again that connection to humanity. And he recognizes, or I, I say he points out, I've created these people. I created them in my image. So the way you treat them does reflect on your estimation of the creator of that person. If that person was made in the image of God and you treat them poorly, well then are you not somehow blaspheming to an extent or, or, or looking down on or despising the one who made them, that image that they were made in? Jesus is concerned even about that little child. For those of you, and I, many of you have this desire, you've told me about it, you have a desire to minister to children, and I don't know why sometimes people think that's somehow a lesser ministry. And maybe that's because of the emphasis we place on it, uh, like how much we talk about it, and and um, how much you hear about it in in uh, I want to say Christian circles. That's probably too too broad of a phrase, but maybe even the amount of. Uh, Attention it gets in sermons and books wherever the sphere of influence. We we think well all the action is with the adults you know they're the ones that pay the bills and you see these hardened men and women lifelong uh, sinners they're hardened through sin and then they get converted big deal you know Th- those are the stories that get told. Then you hear about the little kids and somebody that's just you know teaching the Sunday school class or taking care of. You know, mom taking care of kids at home—they think, well, that's you know, it's, it's it's great, but it's it's not it's not incredibly special. I don't know. I don't know. If I'm reading this right, taking care of those little kids for Christ's sake, in the way that Christ commanded, it's a big deal. It is a big deal, man. Moms, I would cling to this verse if. if If sometimes you get discouraged and think, I wish I could do more for the Lord, but I'm stuck at home with the kids. And I I understand you don't mean that in a a bad way. It's just sometimes it gets to you. I really want you to take a hold of these verses because, boy, you're you're doing something really important. Verse 6, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the, in the depth of the sea. Jesus is illustrating just how bad it is to cause one of these little ones to stumble in their walk with God. Now notice, little ones, we're, we're obviously not talking about infants, right? These little ones are at such a place in their life that they're able to believe in Christ. So that age is going to be different for every individual. We can't put one age on it, but it does give us an idea of at at least how old these little ones are that he's talking about here. But to steer them in the wrong direction, either through words or actions, Jesus said it would be preferable to have a horrible death than to live out the rest of your days and get to the judgment having messed up and caused to stumble—that is to offend these little ones—to get to the judgment, and God says, "These kids heard you, saw you, and that's why they ended up living this bad life. It's your fault." Preferable to drown. Cool. I understand that Jesus is—it's just—he's painting, painting the picture so that we see how serious it is. Oh, I want to be very careful as I raise my kids, as I spend time around anybody else's kids. And I don't want to do it just as a show in front of them. I want them to see a genuine love for God in me, in my home, in our church. I want them to see exactly how wonderful it is to walk with God and how sweet it is to hear the voice of, of the Shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. I want them to, to experience the love that God has given to me. I want to share that with them. Would you agree with me? According to verse 6, Jesus has a very high standard on our behavior. He expects us to be doing our best. So that these little ones get the right idea, that they see what's important, that we should fear God, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. it's not something to be taken lightly. Jesus moves on now with this idea, this, this serious offense that, be, that can be committed. In verse 7, he moves into this a little broader, but same idea Woe unto the world because of offenses. I find interesting the word behind offenses, the Greek word behind that is, listen to this scandalon. Scandalon, you might say. Scandalon, almost like vandalon, but scandalon. Scandalon. And that's where we get the English word scandal. So the offenses to which Jesus is referring is not the accidental or you know, when you just had a bad day or messed up and, and you made a mistake, the, those, are, those can be considered offenses, but the offense that he's targeting here are the presumptuous kind, where you know you're doing it wrong and you just keep doing it anyway. That's the offense he's talking about. Woe unto the world because of offenses. So the world has misery and destruction. Woe carries that meaning. Misery and destruction because of offenses. Because people know they're doing wrong and keep doing it. The world's a miserable place because of that. For it must needs be that offenses come. Interesting statement. We can understand this one of two ways. If you lean more towards the determinist worldview, which we would say is the Calvinist worldview, then you would say, you could say, and some Calvinists do, that God is the designer, the originator of evil, that He Intended for offense to come. It it has to happen because God has planned it out. Now that's a very slippery slope once you go down that theological path, but that's one, one way of understanding that phrase. Here's the other way that the world is so depraved that these scandals are going to happen. It's just, it's part of our future, it's part of our present. We know it. Why? It's because we can see from the past. Since man fell into sin, since since sinful nature entered into humanity, these things are going to happen. Not that they should, not that God had planned it out or wants it to happen, but this is what we can expect from human nature. Then, at the end of the verse, he says, But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. So, the world's going to have problems and make mistakes, but you don't have to be the one making those mistakes. As I understand it, Jesus is saying, listen, bad things are going to happen. People are going to get caught up in scandals. That's just human nature. But don't let it be you that is involved in those scandals. Whereas the determinist would read this maybe to say, God has planned these things out, and if you're one of the people that God has, has prepared to do these bad things. You're one of these vessels of wrath. Well, shame, too bad for you. Woe to you. I just don't see God making that kind of plan and I don't see Jesus showing up saying, "Hey, too bad, I, that just doesn't seem to ring right with me. But as we get into verse eight, I believe verse eight is gonna help us understand verse seven a lot better. Verse eight, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off, cast them from thee. For it is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Now, this is quite an exaggerated situation, right? This is very extreme, maybe is a better word. Jesus is talking about amputation in order to enter the kingdom. Listen, it, it is he talking something literal? Would he really expect this? If if you honestly had to make the choice between having two hands, no kingdom, one hand and kingdom, then yeah, it's it's that serious of a thing. It is. If you honestly cannot with if with two hands, if you could not stop the sin, if you could not repent, if you could not convert Then do what is necessary to enter the kingdom. Anything keeping you from getting saved. This is the extreme. The the first option is just repent. Put that thing away without cutting your hands or feet off, right? That's the first option. But this is how serious it is. Now now listen to the, I want to say the indirect lesson or principle that comes from this. Jesus is indicating you're on your way to hell, but you can change it. There's something you can do about it, which to me overthrows the idea of looking at verse 7 as saying God scripted human history so that mistakes are going to happen and that certain people will do them. If that's the case, if certain people were bound to do those bad things because God had predestined it, then cutting off your hand or your foot would make no difference. Why would Jesus say, try this, maybe it'll change your future, if nothing could change your future. So, verse 8 seals the deal for me. Uh, Well, among other verses, but in the context, it it makes it clear to me, we do have a choice. We can change our outcome. And if it takes this extreme of a measure, then it's worth avoiding hell so that you can enter the kingdom absolutely. Verse 9, if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. Again, very extreme but if it's necessary, cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Hell fire, everlasting fire, those things mentioned side by side. We'll talk more about that fire when we get to some of the later chapters in Matthew. Let me mention quickly, he says, enter into life. In some other context, other passages, it'll talk about entering into the kingdom. Uh, The two are synonymous because when Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom, there will be a resurrection, a physical resurrection. And the dead coming back, that's where you get this mention of life. Now, you can also understand it as entering into eternal life, and that comes with the resurrection. You have this glorified body, and uh, now you've entered a state of immortality. So you can understand it both ways. I think it's equally true verse 10 he's going to go back to the idea of the little ones so he was talking about the little ones and then he moved on to the whole world and how offenses come how serious this is and then he's going to focus back in on the little ones hence my outline little as much take heed that you despise not one of these little ones for i say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my father Which is in heaven. Now, verse 10, interesting verse because we don't have a lot of verses like this that talk about an angelic representation for people up in heaven. And verse 10 does not do a lot to narrow down the subject. It does give us a a, a small glimpse into heaven and into the angelic representation, but there are still going to be some question marks. Um, Hold your place here. You can get Psalm 91, Psalm 91, verse 11, which is the attendance code for this evening. Psalm 91, verse 11. Psalm 91 and 11. So from what we've read in Matthew, "...in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father, which is in heaven." does this indicate that every child has his or her own angel standing before the Father? Right? It it could. It could, but I don't think verse 10 can carry the full weight of that conclusion. It could be a little more general where God has delegated, and I'm just throwing numbers out there. You 100 angels, you're responsible for these one million children, right? It could be more of a group corporate type of setup. I can, when it comes to the spiritual realm and how that operates, we can only go by revelation. It's not like we can peel back the heavens and take a look and see exactly how that works. So, like I said, Jesus' statement doesn't narrow it down completely. Uh, verse 90, uh, Psalm 91, verse 11. This is another verse that speaks about what we normally call guardian angels. The verse we have in Matthew, it does it does support that idea. And this verse, it says, For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. Again, that doesn't narrow it down, but it does indicate that there is an angelic presence that does watch over people and help people to what extent To keep thee in all thy ways. That's also very broad. Now, we know from the temptation of Christ, Satan tried to use this on Jesus. And we learn something there. The devil tried to get Jesus to throw himself down off the top of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple. And in such cases where you're purposely putting yourself in harm's way, doing something, I want to say, presumptuously stupid, then God is under no obligation to protect that person. And then this angelic protection it wouldn't kick in. It wouldn't be applicable. So we know that there are limits to this. Now, as far as angelic representation, I'm going to give you a few other verses. You can just write these down. Revelation 1, verse 20, it speaks about the seven candlesticks and the seven stars in the hand of Christ. And those seven stars are the seven angels. And each angel is connected to a church as you go through Revelation 2 and 3. So it looks as if those local churches, and we might even be able to extend it to local churches today, have angelic oversight. To what extent? I don't know. But there it stands. Uh, Also, Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. And also in that same chapter, uh, verses 20 and 21. Daniel 10, verses 13, 20, and 21, and then also Daniel 12, verse 1. It talks about Michael, the archangel. He is the prince over the people of Israel. So it looks there, as you read through Daniel, that a nation can have angelic representation. So... I'm not gonna dig too deep into this subject and try to make a lot of guesses as to what each angel or group of angels would do, how far they can go to protect people. Uh, But let's just say that even these little ones, when you go into Daniel and you think of an angel watching over uh, a political situation, an entire nation, okay, well then maybe you get the idea that that little one No big deal. He says even these little ones, they have angelic representation. So if you're abusing them, there's somebody up in heaven that's going to say, Hey, uh, Father, something's going on there. It's not like it's just going to get swept under the rug. Heaven is watching that. All right. Um, Verse 11, Matthew 18, verse 11. He says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Now notice the context. We know that in other places Jesus says this, and it's in the context of all humanity. This is in the context of little ones. So the idea of a a ministry that targets children, evangelizing children, it's a legitimate ministry. It is. Even little ones can be lost. If they're they're capable of believing in Christ, then they're capable of, of being lost. Because they understand right from wrong. Now, verse 12 says, How think ye, if a man have an hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray? Doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? Now, in other contexts, Jesus says this again, with the general audience of all humanity. Here He's talking about little ones. Verse 13, And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, and that is not only grown men or women, even the little kids. We sing that song, Jesus loves the little children, All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. I don't know if you know how that proceeds, but you sing the same thing, but you sing it faster and faster. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in a sight. Jesus loves little children of the world. They just faster and faster. Jesus loves little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in a sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. <laughs> I, 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 I suggest that you try that with your family and see how fast you can make that. It's a lot of fun. I enjoy that. But there's a very great truth behind it. These little children, it's the will of our Father, which is in heaven, that not one little one perish. Forgive me, but I'm also going to draw from this a conclusion about determinism. If God has elected some to eternal life and reprobated others, rejected others to eternal damnation, what do we do with these little ones? Because Jesus made it clear, not one of the little ones, God doesn't want any of them to perish. So that means all the little kill, all the little children the kids are chosen, <laughs> right? God wants to save them all, so that means they're part of the elect. If, if you're a determinist, <laughs> you can't have them get older and go oh no now you've switched sides you're in the reprobate group. God wants everybody to be saved. Now this is a clear truth from other verses. Second Peter three verse nine, God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. 1 Timothy two verse four the will of God for all men to be saved. We see it clearly here. Now back to verse 13 quickly, I want to show you this. He rejoices more of that one sheep that is found than the 99 which went not astray. Now let's make sure we understand this in the context in which Jesus normally uses that statement, which went not astray. Every single sheep has gone astray, right? All of us. All we like sheep have gone astray. Isaiah 53. All of us. So to say that there are ninety and nine which went not astray, what is Jesus indicating? Is he trying to say that there are people that are sinless or righteous enough that they don't need saving? Well, obviously not. Uh, Just flip over to Luke chapter 15, just quickly. Um, Luke 15, we have a few parables in this chapter that speak to this subject. Look with me at verse number 7. He gives the same parable of the 99 and then the one that got saved. In verse 7, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over 99 just persons which need no repentance. He said, well, there it is again. They are just. They don't need to repent. Um, you remember back in Matthew 9, we studied it, where some, some Pharisees came And said, Jesus, why are you eating with these publicans? And Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, he says that almost tongue-in-cheek because the Pharisees counted themselves as righteous people. But it's the wrong kind of righteousness. It's a self-righteousness. And in Luke 15, if you know these parables, we, we end up on the prodigal son. And then there's an older brother. The prodigal son is a picture of the publicans, the harlots, the the really wicked of society that go astray and then come back in repentance. The older brother is a picture of the Pharisee, the Sadducee, the scribe, who is this hypocritical, outward, self-righteous kind of guy, doing it for the show. Inwardly, he's full of dead men's bones. He doesn't think that he needs to repent. Right, so that when Jesus uses that phrase, He uses it in that context. It's not that there are some sheep that never need saving, but there are some sheep that think, that think they're righteous enough. And Jesus is trying to indicate, you guys think that God up in heaven is all excited about how righteous you think you are. That's not the case. Even this little one that gets saved, Matthew 18, Great joy over that, more than this outward religious show that a lot of people are putting on. All right, Matthew 18, let's get into verse 15, the local church manual. Local church manual, verse 15, moreover. Now, he's moving on with the idea of offending people, right? He's just been talking about that. You can offend the little one, you cause him to stumble or doubt or fail to walk with God properly. And then he spoke generally about how the world does it. Now he's going to talk about in the church. Sorry, I looked this way again. Forgive me. I'm back to this side. Even in the church sometimes, somebody can do or say something that offends you. And it can cause you to stumble. Uh, how do you deal with that? Verse 15, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. You do not gossip about it. Here's how it's often handled. Somebody does you wrong, and at least half of the church finds out about that fault before you ever approach that person who did you wrong. They hurt your feelings, they said something, did something, and maybe you have a legitimate case, maybe you don't. Maybe you just didn't understand what was said or done. That's why you go to that person alone and talk it through. Now, you might have a legitimate reason to be upset with them, but then go talk with that person. You don't need to go to 20, 30, 40 other people and go, can you believe so-and-so said this or did this? Can you believe that I, you know, I have always been good to them. I've always done that, and on and goes, and you're just spreading discord. You're sowing discord among the brethren. And if you go back to Proverbs 6, verse 16 and 17, that's on the list of the things that God hates. It is one of the seven abominations to God. He that sows discord among the brethren. God hates that. If you have a problem with somebody, go to that person. Look at it. Go and tell him. They need to see you. See your face. You can... Listen, when we communicate, we communicate more through body language, facial expressions, tone of voice. The least amount of communication is in the words that we use. Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee... So, you say, Brother, please have a seat. i got an issue. You said this, you did that. It hurt me. This is why... Did I understand you correctly? If he hears your side of it and says, "Man, I, I am so sorry. I didn't think that through. I, you know, I was having a bad day. Whatever the thing is, you make it right. Thou hast gained thy brother. Gained in what sense? The fellowship is restored. He apologizes. He repents, and you've put it behind you. On you go. Now that's the way it should be. Offenses must come. Didn't Jesus just say this? We are going, we will have to apply this in our lives. At some point, you're going to have to approach somebody and have this uncomfortable conversation of saying, listen, I, man, I hate to bring it up, but this has really been sticking in my heart. And I I just can't get past it. We need to talk about it. You know what I found? I have had this situation. I have had people come to me and say, Pastor, you said that, especially with me being the pastor, I live out loud, right? Good grief. There are so, it, James even said in James chapter 3 that when you're one of the the leaders in the church, one of the, the masters, he calls it there, of the assembly, you, you're going to make mistakes with what you say. And many times I either I get misunderstood or I just don't say it very well. Or I, maybe I use poor discretion and I say something I shouldn't. That happens. I've had people come to me and say, "Pastor, man, I heard you the other night you said this and this. I don't know, is that right? Should you say those things?" Is it okay? I had one guy, we sat down, and I said, "Brother, let me show you from the Bible why I said those things." But he was right about my lack of discretion. I I should really have I should have been more careful about how I communicated that thought. I said it in a very sarcastic way that particular time. He was right. I'm, I'm so glad that he pointed it out. It really helped me. And since that time, I've been much more sensitive when I discuss those issues because I still had to talk about it. It, it, was, it was right for me to bring that up, but not the way I brought it up. And from that time on, me and that brother, our relationship grew so strong. He. To this day, we are still solid friends. I, I can't tell you what a blessing it is, sometimes you got to go through this, what a blessing it is to work it out. It makes the relationship even better. But what if you sit the guy down, you tell him what's on your heart, and he says, man, I ain't apologizing for that. Verse 16, but if he will not hear thee. now. This could indicate that he listened to you and said, no, I, I'm not wrong. I'm not apologizing. And you know you have a legitimate biblical case. He was wrong. He, he, he violated these verses. You know, not just a preference thing, but a, he, he was genuinely wrong. Or maybe he doesn't even give you the time of day. Either way, it would fit. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more. You see, you didn't tell anyone else before. You just you go get one, two more. Now, I would advise you to get one or two more people that have some wisdom about them, that are mature, that know the Bible, that can deal with the situation as it needs to be dealt with. 1 Corinthians 6, it it talks about choosing those that are least esteemed in the church to do this, but they're still wise people, but they're not people of reputation. So, you're not worried about, you know, you chose them because they have this great role in society no, I chose them because they're wise and humble and can help. He says, then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So maybe that one person hearing you say it, they're not convinced, but when they hear two or three others that, and these people are godly and genuine, and they say, listen, brother, this guy's not trying to hurt you. They're, they're trying to help. This is, this is why that's right. And sometimes they need two or three other people to say it for it to sink in. That's, that's, that's true, right? That's how we operate. Sometimes it, it takes a few extra uh, mouths weighing in on it. Verse 17, he takes it another step. Now, obviously, if, if the two or three convince him and everything's made right, you've gained your brother and on you go. But verse 17, if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. Whew. When's the last time you saw that happen? I am not suggesting, now let's everybody bring all of our problems to church next Sunday and let's all talk about them. Man, you want to avoid this. I have been in church services where people have practiced, we call this church discipline. It is very uncomfortable. It is not nice. It's necessary, but it is not nice. Now, there are two ways people approach this. Tell it unto the church. Some people... Some people, they do address the entire church. Everybody in attendance. That's brutal. Another way to handle it, and I think this is a biblical way to do it, in the Old Testament, whenever Moses or whoever was leading Israel wanted to address the nation, they would call together the heads of the tribes. So one of each of the 12 tribes would come, and they would listen to this, you know, ordinance or this law or whatever, whatever needed to be announced. And then they would take it back and tell the rest of the tribe. So there was a designated elder, if you will, to stand in and represent that group. And such could be the case here that when we address the church, you would, you address a group of elders that represent the congregation, right? So I, I, I really think it depends on what the situation is, how you need to handle it. It would depend on what the offense was. But those are the t- I think both ways can be acceptable. If he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, so now the whole church would be turning to this person and saying, Man, listen, you were wrong. What you did was wrong. We're, we love you. We want you to make this right. All you need to do is just apologize and accept that you messed up. So the whole church is now, and God forbid this would happen in a church service, but I could see where, that's, that's where Jesus is going with this. Let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Treat him like an outcast, like a, like a Gentile, the heathen man. The word is ethnokos, which is the word for Gentile. Now bear in mind, the early church was very, it was Jewish. So treat him like an outsider. This matches what Paul tells the churches in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians, and 2 Thessalonians 3, you admonish the brother, you warn him, and if he doesn't want to repent, then you excommunicate him. You put him out of the church. It's not because you hate him. It's not because you want to see his life destroyed. You do this to get his attention so that he sees how serious it is it also protects the testimony of the church and the rest of the people in the church right you don't want to let that slide whatever that bad behavior is that they're not repenting over because then somebody else might get the idea hey we can do this and it's no big deal it is a big deal it is and i realize that a lot of modern churches modern i don't mean you know mega church uh, uh Charism. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not pointing to any one denomination or style of church. Modern church, as in the, the churches of the 21st century, this is not popular. And I know very few people that would put up with this. But this is a necessary part of the local church. God forbid it has to get all the way to verse 17. But Jesus he established the local church and he's giving his disciples rules by which it should be run. So that there is a way to handle disputes internally so that we don't get to verse 17. We we want to keep it in verse 15, right? But verse I I, th- I think I've said enough so that you understand that passage. But if you have questions about that, please feel free to let me know. Verse 18, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. So you bind it. That is, you go to the brother, Listen, you did me wrong, I'm hurt. And he says, No, I didn't. That's your problem, get over it. Whatever the case is, however he might say that. Now, it's still binding. There's, no, there's been no forgiveness there. There's been, because there was no repentance. So it's bound. It's bound on earth. God says, is bound in heaven. Because you didn't fix it on earth, it's still a binding situation. You're still going to have to deal with that later on. Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We spoke of this briefly back in Matthew 16 when Jesus told Peter he could bind and loose in this way. This is something that anybody in the church can and needs to do. And Jesus is saying, if you loose it, that is, forgive them, then in heaven, it's, it's done. You're not going to meet this again at the judgment. And God says, hey, why, isn't, why haven't you resolved this yet? So just think of this. These issues that you did not work out properly with your brother or sister, your fellow church member, you will one day. You will one day. Now, I'll say this as well before we move on. Sometimes, if that brother or sister simply will not listen, you do as much as you can. You do what you can. If they don't want to listen, you just follow the Scripture as far as you can with it. Right? Don't, don't continue to beat yourself up and say, yeah, but man, it's my fault that they're gone. It's my fault that now they, we had to put them out. No, no. You did what you could. You did what you should. Some people may not like that high level, that high standard that you're trying to keep. It's not that you're trying to be hard or disagreeable. You're trying to keep that church a holy and sanctified place. Verse 19. Again, I say unto you, now, he starts by saying again, so it's in the same line of thought. It's not exactly the same situation. But maybe I can say he's, he's, he's going to give us that same idea, that same truth, in another way. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. So, building on what he said, if two of you agree well what's the context that a thing should be bound or a thing should be loosed so if you agree then the father in heaven it's it's he gets on board with it as well says okay if you both of you, if it's bound it's bound if it's loosed it's loosed but jesus appears to be moving beyond just that individual context if two people agree on something and take it to the father it seems to add credence to whatever the prayer request is. Now, this I think we, last week in Matthew 17, we talked about the importance of prayer and how our prayers do make a difference and how even fasting, right, and our fervency can add to, can I say the potency of prayer? Then group prayer also adds to the potency of something. This verse by itself, just as any promise in prayer, you can't just grab it and say, because we agree, it's gonna be done. There are other things to consider, but this is where we would get the idea that if something is very serious to us, we would ask some other people, please pray with me and and explain to them what you're going through, why you need that prayer, what your request is, and then they can take it to the Father as well. And you know what's better than two is three. Ecclesiastes 4, right? Two are better than one, and then he goes on to say a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So to get two people agreeing, that's great, but then to get three, even better. So you can see in verse 20, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Very interesting verse, and we're just running short of time. I don't have time to really unpack all of this, but let me introduce a couple ideas. This is a very spiritual statement, and when we quote this verse... We always, I say always, we generally are indicating that the Lord's presence is with us spiritually, right? Two or three are gathered together in His name. Remember, that means you're doing it His way, according to His will, His authority. He told me to do it this way. So you can't just get together and repeat the name Jesus and expect His presence to be there. You've got to be doing things the way He said. Then we understand it that the the, pre, the manifested presence of the Holy Spirit would be there with us. And I, I believe that fully. I think this verse fits that. I think we can claim this promise. However, when Jesus said it, the Holy Spirit had not come down yet as he did in, in the book of Acts. Jesus is still physically on the earth, so it's not as if he can be in more than one place at one time, not physically. So how would they have understood this? The presence of Jesus is embodied in his teaching. So where his teachings are employed, his presence is felt. So this is why you will see these two things blending together. The scripture is often personified. What, what do we call the scripture? The Word of God. What's The name of Jesus, the Word, capital W, of God. In 1 Corinthians 3, other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the foundation. Matthew 7, what did Jesus say the foundation is? What's the rock? His sayings. So the embodiment of, when we look at his teachings, when they are employed, then, that is as good as Jesus standing there watching over that group of people and how they're behaving. Now, I say there's there's there are a lot of other things we could say about that, but that's the general idea. Again, if you don't understand how that might work, let me know and I'll I'll talk about it further at another time. Let me see if I can make us uh, make some some headway into these next verses. Verse 21, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him, till seven times? You can see why he would ask this question based on verse 15. How many times do I got to go through this? Verse 22, Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto these until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Now, if you were with us, I can't remember when I said it recently, Um, But I showed you some verses in the book of Luke where Jesus talked about your brother sinning against you seven times in a day. And you have to forgive him if if he turns and repents. But here it's not seven, but 70 times seven, so 490. But, wow, 490? Isn't that pushing the limits? Now, seven times in one day, that's the limit for a day. 490 times, I would take it, that's for a lifetime. But there is a cutoff point where you say enough is enough. Now, I don't think we should be keeping score, right? Say, oh, oh, that was seven. That's, that's it. Do it again. Done. I... But, but there, there, is, there does come a time where you say enough is enough. Now, coincidentally, 490, that's a very unique number in the Bible. This, if you take the time of the judges, look in the book of Judges. Samuel is the last judge. Look at the time. You go Samuel 490 years back. You'll see it's the time of the judges, 490 years. And then, I'm just getting my dates correct. Give me one moment. That's right. From Saul, King Saul, to Nebuchadnezzar. So this is Zedekiah, when Zedekiah is taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. So from Saul to Nebuchadnezzar, 490 years, 490 years. Now, I take it that from the time Israel had a king with Saul till the time of Zedekiah, the land of Israel should have been governed by the word of the Lord, but they weren't. Some of the kings did employ the word, but not not many of them. For those 490 years, every seventh year, the people of Israel were supposed to al- allow the land to rest. They were not supposed to farm the land. But for 490 years, they kept working the land every seventh year. And God, Now, if you do that every seventh year, guess what? That's 70 years that the land should have rested. The people of Israel didn't leave it alone. So God removes them from the land for how long? For 70 years. He says, you guys go to Babylon. We're going to give the land the break That it was supposed to get. So I find it interesting that God lived up to this. Jesus, he sets a very high standard here, but it's one that he has already kept. He forgave them 490 years worth of time. And then he said, okay, enough's enough. You guys are going past the limit. I've cut you off. Go to the land, go into captivity, let the land rest. Okay, we're going to stop there because I don't want to rush through the last part of the chapter. There is one main theme, so it's not going to take too, too long. We're going to look at the importance of forgiveness and being patient and so forth, but don't want to, don't want to rush a lesson, a lesson about patience, right? Okay, so uh, I don't see any questions over there. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me, and we'll close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you this evening that we've had this opportunity to look at these things in the Scripture, Lord, Help us to take seriously the things you take seriously. Even, Lord, our conduct, and how we affect even the smallest of people around us. We don't want to give anybody the wrong idea about you. Thank you, Lord, even in this passage. We've seen how abundantly patient you are. 490 times. Thank you, God, for giving us, devising a plan for us within the church, within our lives, that we can make our relationships right with people. God, help us. Help us to avoid at all costs the discord that comes That comes with life, Lord. As humbling as it might be, help us to do what's necessary so that uh, we can live in peace and harmony with each other. Father, thank You for Your help tonight. I do pray that You'd bring us back together tomorrow, hungry, ready to learn more from You. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.